Oi, oi, I'm Jimmy Bullard, and this is me old muck of Fenners. We're back together, son. How are you? Hey, Bully, great to be back working with you. What are we doing here, though? We're starting a football club in podcast form. The only thing we know, it's called FC Bullard. After that, it's all up for grabs. So, we haven't got any players, we haven't got a kit, we haven't got a club badge, we haven't got a stadium. Correct. FC Bullard. Welcome to the club. This is a crowd podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Galvanizer, Joe Galvin. To be more like Joe, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show, become an official sponsor, get bonus content, and grow the show today. You're listening to The Marler Show. It isn't on the radio. It's a podcast, fool. You listen anywhere you go. The Joe Marler Show. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Joe Marler and this is Tom Fordyce. Hello, Tom. Hello, Joe Marler. It's lovely to see you. We aren't so much changing tack today, but we're going into a big topic, aren't we? It's a big one. You've been prepping. You've done a lot of research. He says, hopefully. Have you done a lot of research? Yeah, I have. Well, I've had to. But not not so much that I've now run out of questions for our guests to answer. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to know too much of it all. But, yeah, it is a bit of change of tact from the recent episodes we've had out. But that's why I love doing this show. We get all sorts coming on and all different stories and it's important that this one's told. For me and you sitting in our podcast bubble... You know, we don't really, although you more than me, know a lot more about the outside world, but we don't. Re- it doesn't really hit home as much as it probably should. So let's, let's get into this one. Perfect. Before we do, if you would like to support the show, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify and Patreon. For just a pound a week, you can get bonus content, ad-free episodes, and you will be growing the show at the same time. And you can also listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. Right, let's get him on then. This is a first for the Joe Marler Show, Tom, mm-hmm. because our guest today is Colin, who has already been on the show before. Hello again. Hello again. Well, Tom, how do you feel about double-dipping guests? If by double-dipping you mean, is it nice to see Colin again? It's very nice to see you again, Colin. Uh, your episode that you recorded with us before about being kidnapped by pirates has proved one of our most successful. <sighs> and many, many people have told me how much they enjoyed it, as well as wondering if you're some sort of lunatic because you didn't seem that shit-scared um, in telling the stories. Not in the slightest. Oh, it's very nice of you. Don't you say that to all your guests, though? Well, no, we don't, because we don't actually speak to our guests ever again after they've been on. Oh, I see. You're, yeah, you're our first double-dipper. Breathe a sigh of relief. And, yeah. <laughs> Although we do offer feedback to some. Um, but for those who haven't listened to the episode about Colin getting kidnapped by pirates, please go back and give that a listen because it's one of our favourites. Colin, we saw you in 2021, was it? Late 2021, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where have you been and what have you been up to since the last time we spoke to you? Uh, yeah, the reason I'm here today is because I've spent most of the last year reporting in Ukraine on the war. Joe, your reaction to this, because my feeling is to look at Colin and say, for fuck's sake, Colin... You got over the kidnapping by pirates and now you've gone back to a massive war. <laughs> yeah, it was... Have you not learned? 
So slightly different sort of thing. Uh, one of the benefits of being in Ukraine is that um, there's not much of a kidnapping risk. Um, as a Western Silver reporter, lining. as long as you stay, you know, not too close to the Russians, you're generally fairly welcome there. They like having uh, Western media around, which is a bit of a change of scene, actually, after years of reporting in the Middle East and certain parts of Africa were, were often not that popular, as it were. So it's a year ago since the war in Ukraine started. I can't even Nearly, see yeah. Ukraine. February the 23rd, stroke 24th, yeah. Did you hear about it starting and then go, right, I'm going to go out there and report on this, or were there murmurs before... The war started. So forgive me, at the top of this episode, I don't know a huge amount of the details of what's going on in Ukraine or has been going on. I only see the headlines on the news mm. And, mm. and bits of bobs here, so it's one of the biggest reasons getting you on, getting an expert in. But were there murmurs before the war actually yes. started yeah. that you yeah. thought, oh, this is going to kick off soon? Yes, yeah, so um, in about the month or so leading up to the war... There was a big build-up of Russian forces in the east and the north, all along the border between Russia and Ukraine. So everybody thought, is Vladimir Putin going to invade? Now, the thing is, he'd done the same thing in spring of 2021 as well. A big build-up of forces. Everybody was worried he was going to invade, and he didn't. And so everybody thought this time, or you know, when he did the same thing last year, that it was just going to be a bluff, just to frighten the Ukrainians and put everybody on, on alert and so on. So nobody really knew, but the US government and the British government were giving a, a lot of signals that they thought this time he was going to go ahead with it. They weren't sort of saying exactly what it was they'd heard, whether they'd done an eavesdropped conversation between Putin and one of his cronies saying, ah, ha, 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 you know, we're going to invade Ukraine. But they certainly knew stuff that was suggesting they were very, very worried. Um, having said that, though, you know, uh, even the people who'd heard the worrying stuff, I don't think were convinced that he was that nutty to go ahead with it. So when I went out there, or just prior, in the run-up, I said to the Telegraph, look, I'm around if you want me to go. And they said, yes, um, so can you head out and replace one of the guys who's already there because he's been there for a month, he's had COVID, he's knackered, etc., etc." And um, everybody thought that it would just be a damp squib um, and that he would maybe take a little bit more of the territory in the east that he's already annexed, but really that, you know, there was not going to be anything like a full-on invasion. So I went off out there. I went to Lviv in the west for various reasons. I flew in on what turned out to be the last flight in on the Wednesday night uh, from Stansted. Got into the hotel, I think had a couple of beers, went to bed thinking, this is all just going to be a damp squib. Bit of a boring story, really. There'll be climb-downs, there'll be lots of diplomats talking and so on. Then 5am uh, the next morning, I get texts from my colleagues saying, the war has started, all hell is breaking loose, Kiev is getting bombed, there are Russian con tanks uh, and armoured vehicles approaching the city, etc., etc., etc. And um, the rest is sort of, you know, history, I suppose. Yeah. There's a lot here, Joe, that we're going to deep dive on, I think. We need to do a definite deep dive on Putin. But the first thing I want to know, Colin, just from your perspective, because you're our man in Ukraine for the purposes of this show, when you get a call to say, yeah, you're going, have you got the foreign correspondence bag packed yeah you've got your and what's in that bag this is the um, i could be there for three days i could be there for two months well you get a take a flat jacket um helmet first aid kit so basics uh then also because of 
Vladimir Putin's, everybody thought he had lots of cyber capabilities. You're also taking a satellite phone because it was it was assumed that he'd knock out the, the mobile phone network and also several thousand pounds in cash because it's assumed that, uh, that it will become a cash economy, that none of the banks will work, etc., etc. So everybody will just want cash all the time. Uh, so th- those are some of the, the preparations you make. Um, me being disorganized, having left things <laughs> to the last minute, didn't have a sat phone, didn't have uh, that much cash. And then when I woke up the next morning, all the banks were either shut or had people you know, long queues of Ukrainians taking every bit of their last savings out of them. So that that wasn't ideal, but these things happen. I, I, I might have given the hint, the, the suggestion earlier that this was all kind of in a day's work. That's not quite true. I was bricking myself a bit because this was not like doing a war in certain parts of the Middle East where or Africa, where um, which have done before, where you know the the, the players are not massive players. This was Vladimir Putin, uh, Russia, the world's second superpower. He's got tanks, he's got drone missiles, he's got nukes, and he's got teams of Russian paratroopers who might be landed on my hotel roof, for all I know. So it, it was it was scary. You know, it was like, this, this is the real thing. This is... It was pretty scary. And I think most people around the world felt that to some extent. I need uh, not to rewind too much, but my knowledge on this war is as layman as you could probably get. Putin is an arsehole, probably bigger than an arsehole, actually. And he wants a bit of land in Ukraine. He's claiming that that it belongs to Russia, or it did used to belong to Russia, and now he wants it back. So he's gone, fuck it, I'm invading Ukraine, claiming that back. That's the general gist of it. And Ukraine have gone, no, no, this is our land. Is that the... Help me. Broadly, yeah. So Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire if you go back hundreds of years to the Tsarist times. When communism happened, when Russia went communist, you had the Soviet Union, Ukraine was also part of the Soviet Union, as were many, and then other places like all the Eastern European countries, Poland, the Czech Republic, were all part of what's known as the Warsaw Pact, all the communist countries, which were kind of ultimately ruled over, really, the, the ultimate power in that empire, in, in, in the Soviet Union and the, the communist bloc was held in Moscow. So it was a bit like a continuation of the old Russian empire in, in, under, you know, under a different ideology. Um, and then when communism collapsed, lots of countries, uh, or most of the Eastern European countries, for example, declared their independence, and so did Ukraine. But Ukraine is it's a big place. It's right next to Russia. It, Russia's got about 150 million people, Ukraine about 50 or so. It was part of Russia's sort of industrial powerhouse back in the days of the Soviet Union. And it also provided a lot of, of food. It's a big farming, huge farming area, very rich soils. And also it's got access to the uh, the Black Sea, Russia's only warm water area, I think, if, I think I'm right in saying that. Well, well after communism, Russia kind of kept Ukraine quite closely in its wing and it regards Ukraine really very strongly as its backyard. So when Ukraine started talking about joining the European Union, which they did really from about 2004 onwards, the Russians were not very happy about that. Had the the relationship between Russia and Ukraine always been good, even though they wanted their independence? Did they... 
was it amicable? What did they get on as as countries moving forward? Or? On off. So um, in Ukraine, you've got a mixture of Russian speakers uh, and Ukrainian speakers. Ukrainians is a separate language. It's similar but distinct. Um, the U- the Ukrainian speakers tend to be in the West, nearer Poland and Europe, and many of them see themselves more as Europeans than Russians. And then in the East, you've got more Russian speakers, and they're often the ones who identify as uh, having more affinity with Russia and Moscow and so on. And ever since 2004, when they had a thing called the, the Orange Revolution, that was when they had a there was a pro-Kremlin government in charge, and they got accused of trying to fix the elections. And there was thousands of people poured onto the streets, and there was a big revolution. They got the people power basically overturned the verdict of that that allegedly fixed election. And since then, Ukraine, a lot of Ukrainians, especially the Ukrainian speakers, but not just those ones, want to become part of Europe and the EU. Why do they want to do that? It's not just because they don't like the Russians or anything. It's more because they see in the EU a world where the rule of law is is respected, where democracy is respected. Whereas they look at Russia, not Russians, but Russia under Putin as being a bit more like a gangster capitalist state. Lots of corruption, lots of cronyism and lots of gangster rule, basically, and so on. And that's not a part of the world that they want to be part of. They want to be part of the EU, where you have a better chance in life. And that is one of the main reasons why you've had this growing tensions. And then in 2014, there was another pro-Western revolution that then led to Vladimir Putin taking parts of eastern Ukraine uh, militarily. He took Crimea and he also instigated pro-Russian rebellions in the east of, in other parts of the east of Ukraine. And that kind of start escalated the tensions to the point that we began the war at last year. That's an excellent it's fucking fact. brilliant. Not looking excellent too baffled, yeah. <laughs> I'd say yeah. it's a far more detailed attempt than Putin's a helmet and he wanted some of this land back from Ukraine. So thank you for doing that, Colin. I'm going to be testing you in detail on that answer, Joe, um, towards the end of the show. (laughs) In the meantime, Colin, if that is the background, what was the first two or three days for you and for the country around you like after the invasion? Well, scary. Um, uh, when you w- I went out on the streets that first morning and you can hear air raid sirens going off. Lev- I, as I say, I was in Lviv in the west, so you're, you've not got any Russian soldiers landing, you know, landing near you. Kiev was, you know, they had armoured columns, enormous armoured columns, 50 miles long, marching on the capital. There was fighting in the east, etc., etc. So Lviv is, is, a, is further away from that. Um, only about 50 miles from the Polish border. But um, there was air raid sirens going off. Uh, there were long queues of people at the banks. Uh, there were queues of people buying food. Also, a large trainfuls and trainfuls of people arriving as refugees at the station, people fleeing Kiev. Um, in those first few days, I think about a million people fled Kiev. Enormous traffic jams on the main motorway from Kiev to east to Lviv, which is about 400 miles Also, nobody knew how capable Vladimir Putin's army was. Nobody knew what 
what they could do. I mean, if you were if you were sort of NATO generally, you probably had some idea. I had no idea. So you just imagine some situation where you suddenly got Russian paratroopers landing at the border and starting fights there, which meant that you'd basically be trapped in Ukraine and couldn't leave. Also, you, you saw people taking self-defense measures. Ukraine's got quite a lot of gun shops. I remember going past a gun shop and there was about a queue of about 100 blokes outside all queuing to get guns and this being in Ukraine it, what, this, this is not a gun shop like you get in Britain where they maybe got a couple of double barreled Purdy and Purdy shotguns and a couple <laughs> of air rifles in this place you can get ba- basically assault rifles that will fire or do everything except fire fully automatic things that look like Kalashnikovs basically pump action shotguns pistols of every sort you name it you can get it so everybody is arming up partly to try and defend themselves if Russian soldiers start walking down the street. Also, partly in the anticipation, though, that chaos is going to ensue, lawlessness is going to ensue, and you want to defend your property from looters. And then also uh, people building checkpoints everywhere, you know, sandbags going up, and then enormous big... um, Czech hedgehogs, as in Czech, the Czech Republic, which are like enormous jacks. Do you know those games where you like, used to sort of play yeah, yeah, yeah. marbles All and jacks? spiking out. Spiky things, yeah. 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 Uh, like, like the stingers that people, you, the mm. police use to stop a car coming along, but with spikes about three feet long, made of thick metal, that you scatter them across the road when, to stop tanks coming through. Sorry to interrupt. When you say people... Do you mean civilians or do you mean Ukrainian? Mixture of civilian volunteers and uh, Ukrainian troops and Ukrainian police. But there's a lot of civilian volunteers. Everybody is mobilising at this point. And, you know, every neighbourhood's got its own little civilian volunteer committee um, setting up like kind of armed neighbourhood watch, as it were. And then um, you also saw people making petrol bombs. In Kiev, by the time I got there, in every street corner, there were, or not every street corner, but on a lot of street corners, there's crates of petrol bombs all stacked up, just ready to chuck at any Russian troops that came along. And in Lviv, one of, I think the, one of the first stories, there was a local hipster brewery, um, <laughs> which looked like something out of Hoxton. Um, you know, lots of guys, long beards and, you know, trendy looking. Tiny um, glasses, uh, wearing a bit of tweed. Um, yeah, all built, they'd requisitioned their beer bottling plant um, into a, a petrol bomb factory. Uh, and we're using all their spare beer bottles um, <laughs> to make petrol bombs. And um, they they were calling people in and uh, producing a video showing, look, this is how you make them. You know, you use this mix of petrol, this mix of oil, put the rag in, make sure you shove it in nice and tight. Champagne bottles are very good for this because they're nice and big and da 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 you know. It, it, it was pretty surreal. And they, they, they'd even brewed their own beer for the occasion called Putin is a Dickhead Beer. Um, <laughs> Marketing which, opportunity. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I brought I brought a bottle home, I think, as a souvenir. Yeah. Um. Joe, this is nuts hearing this, isn't it? Because even if you follow the news, you don't see this sort of detail. And it's making me think, this is because Lviv is an ordinary town, it's an ordinary city. This is no different to you waking up in Heathfield and Britain has been invaded. How would you react in that situation? I don't know. I think I'd probably go to the Putin as a dickhead beer bottle place first mm. off I'd probably mainly because I wanted to support the local community with the messaging Putin uh. is a dickhead um, <laughs> I'd have probably mobilised to go and get a weapon of some sort but then this is all me thinking as if I'm on my own 
and actually sitting here listening to you describe all those events and the and the civilians mixed with the Ukrainian police and army and troops, all that. I go, oh right, this sounds surreal, but part of me is like, as a as a young boy, is like, oh, quite cool. We get to mobilise and maybe get some weapons and play army and thing. And then I go, hang on, if that's me and Heathfield, I'm waking up to this and seeing us getting invaded, and I'm thinking about myself and what I do. But then I go, hang on, what about my kids and my wife? They're not thinking in the same way that I am. Oh, this could be quite fun actually, going and play armies sort of thing. And then it hits home and it goes, fucking hell, this is real life. What would I actually do? I'd probably just run to somewhere as safe not, as Not possible. very far away, because I've seen you running. Excellent. <laughs> Brilliant. There's me trying to make a real serious point and you take the piss out of my, my poor knee left it running. <laughs> it's, yeah, really quite scary. What, what, would, what would you do if you've woken up and this is going on? Well, that's the thing. It's so impossible for us to try and really imagine what it's like. And that's why these little details, Colin, I think are so powerful. Because Ukraine is still a country trying to be a country. Yeah. And we're now a year on from mm. the invasion. And, well, settling down is the wrong phrase to use, but there must be a new reality that is there for people in Ukraine now. This whole issue of people, you think of what we do do in that situation... I think it was the first war I'd covered where I was meeting a lot of people who I felt really were like actually quite like me dealing with this extraordinary situation. There's a lot of Ukrainians, they speak English, they're very tech literate, they, you know, they're very European, like people you could imagine having a beer with any day of the week or whatever. It must be a terrifying experience for them. And also a lot of the young men, all the no man between the age of 18 and 60, I think it was, was allowed to leave the country. Tom asked you about what you planned in terms of what you packed before going out there. What about when you uh, you actually got the willies? Were like fucking hell! I can't. Have you got an exit? Did you have an exit plan Not, in place? Or? No, really. The, the plan wasn't to leave. The plan was actually to sort of go to Kiev instead. Oh, um, go to the more even right, right, more let's dangerous stay out part. Of, what was it, Lviv? Yeah. Lviv is in the West, yeah. yeah so where this everybody is nice, else... having a couple of beers, is... just seeing it from afar, people is... mobilising here yeah. and there. It's... Fuck it, I want to go to the heart of the carnage. Yeah, basically. Right. This, is, this is where everybody was fleeing from Kiev, about, you know, a million and a half people. Kiev's got about three million people, roughly half the population left. Uh, then the rest, you know, a lot of the men were told they had to, you know, had, had the state to look after their property, couldn't leave the country anyway. But Kiev is getting surrounded, by, besieged by the Russians. So that's the place where you want to be. It's also the capital. So I started looking around, trying to find a driver who would take me there. Um, <laughs> no, thanks, mate. No. Nope. Yeah. Uh, car hire company. Uh, no. Nope. Um, where are you going? I'm going to Kiev. That's a no. Uh, the car hire firms were a little bit worried about, you know, potentially getting scratches <laughs> on the cars. Well, they shit Plus, themselves about a chip windscreen, so how they'd feel about you driving to a city that's yeah. being well, shelled also, by the Russians. Well, also, a lot of them were based at the airport in Lviv, and I think the airport, had, uh, if it hadn't been bombed, it was certainly considered a target, so a lot of them hadn't turned up for work that day. But Inconvenient it, yeah. for you. So, um, <laughs> uh, we had a couple of days sort of thinking, like, how on earth are we going to do this? This is not going to be easy. And then someone just said, well, why don't you just get on the train? Uh, I was like, what? I said, well, like, you know all those trains carrying refugees from Kiev to Lviv and to the Polish border, yeah? Well, they have to go back. They don't just keep magicking up a new train for each set of refugees. You can just get up on that train and go back the way. And it, this had not occurred to me or nearly anybody else that you could do this. 
Was it like a normal service on the train? Not exactly. Um, you didn't have to have a ticket. As I say, most of the carriages had nobody in them. But otherwise, yes. I mean, there was a there were stewards coming round. The buffet car was open, <laughs> um, serving food that you could get a free thing of rice and meat that were being dished out to the refugees. And also a steward um, who, at one point, told the Italian photographer who was sat near me to take his feet off the seat in front of him. <laughs> it's like, um... Fucking uh, hell! Uh, so right, standards were still bombed. being maintained, yeah. We've just been invaded, but your first thought is to go, excuse me, sir, can, uh, can you take your feet off the chair? Well, it's just, you know, want to maintain standards. He said, take your feet off the seat. You know, we've got enough to worry about as it is. Um, in, in all seriousness, I think that was one of those things that you struck me quite a few times. You've got this mentality of, like, that life is going to go on. Just because we're at war doesn't mean to say we give up. And you, you stick with the small things, and that helps you keep going on the, on the bigger things a bit. What happens when you actually get into Kiev? Um, there was a curfew at the station, so you couldn't get out for about three hours. You're still stuck in the railway station. It was just about sort of, I think, got there 4 a.m. You could get out at 7 a.m. And then after that, uh, it was just time to leave and try and find the flat that was that I'd arranged to step. How did you find your flat? Because usually when you go to a European city, you might spend a bit of time on TripAdvisor. You might choose a nice hotel. I imagine the hotel's were just closing? Was everyone flipped? Uh, yeah, they were, yeah. Um, so the, my colleague for The Telegraph, his hotel was, I think they'd either shut down or was not certainly not taking any new guests. And the hospitality was limited there anyway. I think that they'd kind of more or less run out of food because a lot of the staff had left. Some of the staff had moved in and were living in the basement uh, area, the car park, which was being used as the as the main bomb bunker in, during bombing raids and so on. So I stayed in an Airbnb. Bizarrely, <laughs> oh, Airbnb was still running. Then. Bizarrely, yeah. they were still running. Um, the internet, Super host, was it? Um, uh, I can't remember. It was, a, it was somebody else actually rented it. But um, the, you, at this point, because Airbnb do smart pricing, the prices of the Airbnbs had, not surprisingly, oh, so got a dropped considerably. And Fuck you could me get, dead. You could get a sort of place that looked like almost like an oligarch's palace with modern art on the walls and so on for not very much money. Wow. So you're there, you're in your flat. What next? Are you just sitting there waiting for something to happen or are you going about trying to organise meeting different people to get intel on, on what's going on out there? Like basically what you do at that point, people just want to... The, the readers of the paper, the Telegraph, and pretty much everybody else in, in the UK at that point, uh, what they wanted from journalists who were there was... I often just like, what's it like to be there? You know, what is it actually like? Like as we're, as per what we're having this uh, this chat we're having now, what does it feel like to be there? What you noticed when you went out on the streets though was how quiet it was. This, this is something you usually tell whenever you're in anywhere where there's trouble is really brewing, is that the streets are usually empty because anyone sensible has already fucked off a long, long time ago. So half of Kiev had left by that point and most other people were hiding in bunkers or in cellars or had been mobilised into the army. The only people you really saw on the streets generally were soldiers and the odd person scuttling to some isolated corner shop that was still open. I'm um, thinking of like... 20, the films 28 Days Later it was, or I Am yeah. Legend where it's just... It was just it was like, like that. that. Yeah, if you, if you remember London during lockdown when it was yeah. really empty, 
it was like that, only possibly even a little bit emptier. Yeah, you know, you could see people were scared, really scared a lot of the time. They didn't want to, a lot of people didn't want to talk. We went to a church one day, a few days in, and that, that brought it home because you often see people crying in the immediate aftermath of a bombing or something like that. But on that day, I remember the, watching the church service start and um, people were turning up to the church door and they were in tears, just crying with, with fear. And that that's a different thing from what you normally get, which is people responding to an immediate incident. And, yeah, just people really, really fucking scared, which is, which is not something I'd ever really seen much of before in my reporting career. Shrink the Box is back for a brand new season. This is the podcast where we put our favourite fictional TV characters into therapy. Join me, Ben Bailey-Smith, and our brand new psychotherapist, Namon Metaxas. Hi, Ben. Yes, this season we're going to be putting the likes of Tommy from Peaky Blinders, Cersei from Game of Thrones on the couch to learn why their behaviour creates so much drama. So make sure you press the follow button to get new episodes as soon as they land on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment original podcast. How did people find out what was going on, Colin? The internet. Yeah. Um, and that was the most biz- Again, accurate. bizarrely, like the trains, the internet was still functioning super well. Uh, and everybody thought that this would be the first thing that Putin would do, which would be to you know, introduce some massive cyber attack, um, an electronic pulse or something. For some reason, I don't know why that didn't happen, and generally in Ukraine, the internet is works really, really well anyway. It's better than it is here in London a lot of the time. I had a row with Virgin Media a few weeks ago when <laughs> like, they were saying, oh, yeah, we've got some logistics problems in your area. It's like, you know, I was in Ukraine all last year, and, you know, Vladimir Putin was doing his best. <laughs> what was their response to that at the call centre? <laughs> if, uh, if you're the person on the other end of that phone, the Virgin Media were, and you go, mate, that is... I've heard some fucking porkies in my life. <laughs> you want me to sort you out with a deal or improve your thing. But to say you've been in Ukraine for the last year and the internet's better over there... Oh, just like you're fucking having a laugh here. Uh, to go, I mean, how, how do people get their news? Well, yeah, a, a lot of the time you'd see folk and they're just upset. You know, we talk about doom scrolling in yeah. this country. It's the ultimate doom scrolling. Absolutely, obsessively scrolling. And there was quite a lot of people saying, like, you know, when I'm at home, I just cannot switch off reading about it, which is not surprising because everybody's got friends, family, uncles, distant family, also a lot of WhatsApp groups setting up. You'd have your block, your, your, your friends' WhatsApp group, your work WhatsApp group, and maybe a, a WhatsApp group for your ho- the, you know your housing block. And a lot of people got into the habit, first thing in the morning, they just you, know, you press a button on your WhatsApp group and say, yeah, hi, I'm still good, or whatever. Uh, and then if you didn't hear from somebody, it's like, hmm, one occasion I remember someone saying uh, he checked his WhatsApp group that one morning. He knew there'd been a bombing somewhere near his house. And um, it's like, I haven't heard from John, have you? Or what, it wouldn't have been John, it would have been Vladimir or something like that. Um, have you ever No. Where does he live? Oh, he's over in that, in, you know, around that area where he was bombed. And sure enough, turned out um, that his friend had been killed in that bombing. That was that. That is everyday life for people. There is people suddenly no longer appearing on your WhatsApp group, and you're spending a lot of time fearing the worst. Shall we zoom out a little bit here, Joe? 
And my first question, Colin, would be, as you said, in those first two or three days, the assumption is, is that the Russian invasion will succeed. We're recording this podcast coming up to a year after the invasion. Why hasn't the Russian invasion succeeded? When it first happened, there were American generals who were saying Kiev will fall in 72 hours because just because he's got Putin has gone ahead with this, no one is going to want to fight Putin, and the, all the Ukrainian soldiers will just melt away rather than getting mown down, etc., etc. After 72 hours, they said, "All right, well, look, it'll maybe take about a week." And then after about a week, they said, oh, maybe it'll take three weeks or whatever. And then within, uh, after a month, it was clear that the Russian siege of Kiev would, had failed and that they were pulling out. So why did it go wrong? Well, they, the Russian army was just not as good as people thought they would be. Badly pla- badly led and often badly equipped and often very under-motivated. Under Whereas the Ukrainians were very much up for the scrap, having you know faced the prospect of their own country being invaded. Putin's army did not turn out to be the sort of fearsome, super-modernised fighting force that everybody thought it would be. Where the fuck has Putin come from? So Vladimir Putin, he grew up during the Soviet period and joined the KGB, which in those days was a good way of getting ahead in life if you wanted to do so in communist Russia. One of the ways of reaching the top um, and getting some privileges and a, a decent standard of living was to either be a member of the Communist Party or to join the KGB. KGB who were the secret yeah. police? The, the, the secret police who basically ran Russia in those days. So he, he was a member of the KGB and then at the time of communism, when, when communism collapsed, he was stationed in East Germany and he was not happy at the collapse of communism because he saw it as the collapse of basically the Soviet Union, the Soviet Empire. So he bore, a, I think, he, he was always unhappy at what happened afterwards, seeing all these countries joining the European Union and seeing lots of them join NATO. He's sort of someone who's nostalgic for Russia's great imperial past and so on. And that is what a lot of people say is essentially what he wants to restore. This is why he decided that he was going to invade Ukraine. The reason he came to power... Basically, partly just because he was sober. Unlike Boris Yeltsin, who was the president who came before him in the late 1990s in Russia, who was a bit more pro-Western, but uh, was also a bit of an alcoholic and uh, would often appear to be drunk or slurring his speech during press conferences and so on. And so for your average Russian, given that Russia was facing enough chaos in those days anyway as the communism collapsed, you know, didn't help having a pisshead for a president. So when Yeltsin died, which was came as no great surprise to people given how much he was drinking, Putin was put up as a possible successor to him. And he didn't, you know, he wasn't very charismatic, but I, I think a lot of Russians didn't really care. It was like, right, he's not on the piss. He's not visibly drunk. And he's ex-KGB. He does judo. There was lots of footage of him doing his... Rides judo. horses with his top off. Yeah. Uh, he's, a, you know, a sportsman like you, Joe. Um, you know. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, Colin. I've never ridden a horse with yeah, my top off. You know, to, to many um, voters, you would exude virility, being strong and sportsmanlike and, you know, manly looking. And I think that was Putin's appeal to a lot of people as well, right. that he was a, you know, a, a bit of a Russian tough guy. He was going to get the country back on its feet again, restore law and order, which was a big problem then with Russian gangsters 
combat corruption and, and basically just get the show on the road. And Combat corruption yeah. by creating one of the most corrupt governments. Well, people in Russia at that time, I don't think, given that it, it was lurching into near anarchy in the 1990s after the co- collapse of this police state that they'd had, they'd gone one extreme to another. They just said, right, we, we, we need a tough guy in charge and if he breaks a few heads and breaches a few human rights, I don't think anybody's going to care too much. The strange thing about Putin... Colin, is that there was a period where not only was he acceptable to the West, but certainly in the aftermath of 9-11, George Bush was sitting down with him. There were photo opportunities. He was seen as, if not a friend of the West, then someone the West could do business with. Yes, that's right. Um, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, Putin was saying to the West, look, I've had problems with Islamic terrorism too uh, in Chechnya, where he had fought a very brutal, or Russia had fought two very brutal wars to um, stop Chechen insurgents, although um, the Chechen insurgents would say, well, no, we just want independence. But as a result of that, the, there was a lot of Chechen terrorists carried out some pretty shocking terrorist attacks on Russian soil. So he was saying, yep, look, 9-11, we're all brothers together in this. Um, So for a number of years, yeah, he was in much better odour with the West. Uh, Also, the West was glad, I think, actually, to have a a Russian leader reaching out to them for the first time after all the, the decades of the Cold War. But then... Things kind of went on the slide. I think there'd always been concerns about his human rights record, but the West was willing to turn a blind eye to that a bit and still do business with Russia. A lot of Russian business people coming to London and places like that, that uh, in those years. Uh, they were still willing to do business with Russia and basically let Putin run Russia the way he wanted it. Where things started to get difficult was when he felt that NATO was slightly encroaching in his own backyard or that the, uh, his own backyard was sliding in the direction of Europe, uh, as we were discussing about how Ukraine did. We also saw you saw things like the, the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, the British spy. That was a big watershed moment in, in relations with Russia where the, you had this ex-Russian KGB agent uh, who was a bit of a critic of Putin and who was killed with polonium, a, you know, a very poisonous radioactive agent on Russian soil. And I think at that point it became increasingly difficult for Britain and other countries to maintain any kind of decent relationship with Putin. And also his response to that particular incident was telling. There were two guys who were named by Britain as suspects with fairly convincing evidence because the polonium left a radioactive trail and this radioactive trail you know, literally created a, a glowing uh, trail of clues to, to them and the hotel they'd stayed at and, and everything else. And rather than handing those guys over for prosecution on what was a pretty surefire case, they were elected to the Russian state parliament and they have immunity from prosecution. So, you know, that from then on, I think it became pretty difficult to do business with Putin and things have been on a, on a downwards trajectory really ever since. So that's the Western relationship he, he has. What about his own people and, and how, how much of his own people agree with, well, 
the war in Ukraine and, and the reasons behind going into Ukraine? Well, it's always difficult to tell really what Russian opinion is really thinking because they don't have a very free press there anymore, especially in the wake of the war. So Russians are fairly well ingrained in the habit of telling pollsters and anybody else who asks them one thing and maybe saying something else uh, in, uh, in private. And that goes way back to the days of the Soviet Union as well, when people were very guarded about criticising their own governments, etc. However, there are, there are polling companies in Russia that are considered reasonably accurate. And at the start of the war, you know, it seemed like support for the war was pretty high amongst Russians, 75 or even 80%. Since then, it's dropped to about 50 or possibly a bit lower than that. But it's certainly nothing like the way opinion is here, where the vast majority of people are very much against the war. Over in Russia, it's more the other way around, that there are a lot of people who think Putin has done a pretty good job of keeping the country together, who are not too concerned about human rights or anything else, or liberal freedoms, and who think that the war was you know, was a, was a just one, or is a just one. Um, and their, their main complaint, if anything, is that it's just not been fought very well. Putin's main rivals for power now, if there ever, if there is, if he is going to get removed from power at any point because of the disastrous way the war has gone, with maybe 50,000 or more Russian soldiers dying and humiliation in front of the, uh, of the world, if he is ever removed, it will probably be by people who are more hardline than he is, who think the war was a just thing, but just feel that it was, um, it, it was badly handled and that he's made a mess of it and that they can do better. How on earth would he ever be removed, though? My little knowledge of Russian politics is clear. If he is removed, it's m- most likely to be by his own inner circle, I would guess. There is not much of a sign of street unrest in Russia or any suggestion that some kind of people power movement will get rid of him. There were quite a lot of, you know, demonstrations against the war, you know, by sort of very brave and fairly isolated groups of people when it first started. But most of them have been arrested or jailed. Others have fled abroad. So there's not much sense that there could be any kind of street revolution to to get rid of him it would probably come from within his own within his own inner circle and of course they're all afraid that any plot by them could result in them getting arrested so quite how you go about fomenting a coup in that situation is is well above my pay grade i wouldn't be surprised if there's lots of people in the cia who have been tasked with organizing that very thing or who tasked with reaching out to senior figures in Putin's inner circle or maybe just outside of the inner circle as it were and saying look this is not a good situation you should think about maybe getting rid of this guy is there some way in which we can help you can we put in you in touch with other people who um, might feel the same way and if so what would a, a post Putin Russia look like if it was in your control and, just, yeah just think of the legalities of that well, suggestion. Yeah, I, I don't like, know. If I wanted to off Tom... Yeah. yeah. Sorry, mate, it's just... There might come a time, but okay. it, we're fine for now. Good, thanks for reassuring. Like, if I go, oh, and someone's... Oh, I want to get rid of him, actually get some help of someone else and all that sort of stuff. You go, well, what the fuck are you doing? That's a little, But that would be play on, would it, for the CIA to 
collude with... Yeah, it might not suggest that the, the Putin was killed, but maybe that was put under house arrest or something like that, yes. Um, although that isn't always the Russian way of doing things. I'm speculating here, mm. but I would imagine that somewhere at the very highest top secret echelons of Washington and so on, there are people who are probably tasked with this because, you know, if nothing else, you've got a very dangerous situation. You've got a, The war is still ongoing. There is the potential for it to escalate into a nuclear exchange. I think that's unlikely, but on that basis, you would presumably hope that somebody is at least keeping tabs and trying to maintain channels of communication with members of Putin's inner circle to find out what's happening and also to say to them, look, Look, if you maybe want to think about removing him, let's let's have some conversations so that we can make sure this is done in a, in a safe fashion. This episode is sponsored by the following splendid people. Oliver, patron, bail, in that order. Walking in the air. It's Alec Jenkins. The Thunderbird. Tracy Filler Burke. Detective Sergeant D. Sherman. Tender Love and Sean Carey. The Hygienist, Kirsty Jane. Mark, simply the bestie. Abfab Abby Kyle, the Three Johns, Dickinson, Harrowing and Bradford. And here's to you, Tom Robinson. Grant the Old Bailey, the Batman, Joshua Batterton. And has it? Jonathan Pratt. To be more like all of them, go to patreon.com forward slash Joe Marler Show. Become an official sponsor, get bonus content, and grow the show today. Let's talk about the man on the other side. Let's talk about Volodymyr Zelensky. Because had you met him, Colin, say 15, 20 years ago, you would have been hard-pressed to see him as the man he has become. Yes, he was a uh, former comedian, and yeah, he became president in 2019. At which point, Vladimir Putin kind of rubbed his hands and thought, right, I've got to, you know, look at this joker, quite literally. Um, <laughs> he's not going to be he's much. like that one, did you? Yeah. <laughs> well, in my head, I'm yeah. thinking of it as being like Jack Whitehall becoming prime minister. So I was thinking yeah. more Ian Hislop. Yeah, Hislop would be better. You know, like he's a little bit more well, he's, up to speed. With he's often the, likened to John Stewart on The Daily Show oh, in right, the US. Okay. So Zelensky got elected in 2019. Yeah. So I promised to have a new broom government in where they would introduce EU-style democratic reforms, combat corruption and so on. You know, a new generation of people who weren't the sort of old corrupt post-Soviet politicians. That, like like most political administrations that coming on a landslide things started to sour a bit they weren't doing that well and then when the war began brewing uh, a lot of people were like you know Zelensky's not going to be able to cope with this he's just a performer you know uh, we need someone a bit more seasoned in but he had no choice he was thrown into that and he's he, I think you'd just say he's adapted to the role and <laughs> in that situation it's all about leadership and he's good at doing that he's very very good as a former comedian at relating to people and coming to across to them as a as an ordinary person stuck in the middle of this nightmare situation ha- which is what everybody else is as has well. he genuinely led well 
has his decision making and yeah, um I, I wouldn't know about his individual decisions on you know the battlefield and so on the sense is that he's got quite a good team of generals and foreign ministers he's got a good team behind him but where he has done well is as a sort of figurehead and spokesperson for the nation on the world stage in the first few days of the war, the Russians said, look, we are going to try and hunt him down and we are going to either capture or kill him. That was the word went out that there were Russian teams of Russian special forces agents in Kiev actually basically take him out. And so everybody thought that he was going to flee abroad with his family. And then I think on day late on day two of the war, when it was all looking very, very bad, he suddenly appeared... Uh, in a mobile, a self-shot mobile phone video with a couple of his other ministers behind him walking around the streets of Kiev in the dark so you couldn't see where he was because he was worried about a you know a drone strike hitting him. And he just did this little 30-second broadcast saying, um, look, I'm here, my ministers are here, the army is here, we are all here, and that is going to be the way it is. You know, we're, we ain't going anywhere. Long live Ukraine or whatever. So 30-second speech probably the most important speech he'd ever made in his life. And at that point, everyone was right, the president's not running. Um, we're two days in. We are all still OK. Everyone rally around. And um, from that point, he's been considered widely, I think, a hero in the West. And also just the, the optics of it were great. There's Putin sat at this big, super long table that he had in the Kremlin to keep people away because he was worried of getting covid you know, this big 20-foot-long marble table surrounded by other ageing cronies, looking very much like a Bond villain who's kind of passed it a bit. And here's Zelensky. He's got his army gear on. He hasn't had a shave. He's, you know, talking on a, a, a modern piece of communication equipment, a mobile phone. It's all very informal. It looks like a 21st-century Che Guevara, you know. He's, he looks cool. Putin doesn't. That's one of the ways that the, the war has been shaped in terms of the sort of PR narrative. Uh, Zelensky, the kind of the funky guerrilla leader versus Putin, this old school, all powerful buddy. So Zelensky's led well. The West seem to view, we all seem to view him as a, a hero and he's doing a great job. Why haven't we just joined forces? Why hasn't the West just joined forces with Ukraine and gone, fuck it, we'll take Russia on ourselves? Well, because that would mean that uh, NATO basically getting involved, you know, which is Britain, most of the European countries and America. And they have their mutual assistance pact, which means an, an attack on one is an attack on all. And if Britain and America got involved, basically Putin would see that as an existential threat to Russia, whether or not they were coming over the border into Russia. Everybody fears he would retaliate with nuclear weapons. So it's, it's just about not escalating the thing, really. What is life like on the ground now, Colin? in Ukraine, coming up to a year after the invasion? In Kiev, it's often still surprisingly normal, even though they've been bombing lots of infrastructure uh, areas and hitting power stations and so on. Life goes on as, uh, you know, much as before there, there's still shops and bars open and so on, but a lot of them are being powered by generators. There's power cuts all the time and so on. And, you know, in, in a country where the temperatures drop down to minus five, minus ten quite often. That's not pleasant at all. In terms of the morale of the people, morale is apparently still pretty high. 
It certainly was when I was there in November. There's a sense that people are winning the war. So even if day-to-day life is tough, things are going in the right direction. So that keeps people going a bit. But I don't think anybody's enjoying it at all, no. And I've, I've spoken to some folk who say, like, look, I'm just getting tired, especially if they're out fighting on the front lines. I'm getting tired of just being here day in, day out and fearing for my life and wondering about when I'm next going to hear that one of my own loved ones is dead. And while we have no idea of the number of Ukrainian casualties, the Ukrainian government doesn't give them out and it's hard to make accurate estimates. It it may be in the region of 50,000 or possibly more. I haven't checked the stats for some time, but that's a lot of people, yeah. How does it end? Well, it doesn't look like Putin's going to win, certainly. Um, his, his invasion has basically failed. He's still trying to push forces into little parts of the east. Uh, and he also still possesses Crimea, which he took in 2014. But the West has just decided that they're going to give Ukraine a load of tanks, proper modern high-tech tanks, NATO standard tanks that will be much more effective on the battlefield than Putin's ones, which a lot of which date back to the Soviet era. So there's not going to be much of a contest there. That gives the Ukraine now the, uh, the opportunity to actually retake a lot of the territory that the Russians are still holding. It's always hard to retake territory that somebody else is defending, but they should be able to do that. Where it goes after that, though, is difficult. I mean, what does Russia do? How does the West restore relations with Russia? That is all a big big unanswered question. There's the question of what will happen to Putin now that he's been humiliated. And there is also the question of all the sanctions that the West has slapped on Russia about, you know, relating to oil and energy, which will steadily impoverish Russia over the next few years. But that's when you start looking at the crystal ball. As we discussed earlier, there isn't really any sign of Putin leaving. And if he does, it won't be, he won't get replaced by some cuddly liberal, you know, pro-Western type. It might be somebody very similar to him or a general or somebody like that. Meanwhile, the economy will be getting worse and worse there. I think the, the, the ultimate nightmare is that Russia becomes a complete failed state again, as it almost was in the 1990s, and again with nuclear weapons and lots of very disaffected, very angry people. Uh, and that is not a good recipe. Uh, it may, there may be a desire among some people to humiliate Russia here, but really it's an, an angry, wounded Russia is, is not great, really. I, I do worry that... Putin, because of his failed attempt at an invasion and having not met him personally or not know him personally, (laughs) worry that his ego would just be like, oh, fuck, I'm on my way down. I'm going to go out swinging and just go, fuck it. I'm going to set fire to the world, basically. With a nuclear weapon? Yeah. Um, Nobody I've spoken to seems to think that's going to happen. I've read an academic paper by some uh, think tank people who said they thought the chances of nuclear war have gone up from like a couple of percent to maybe five or ten percent, which to me is quite a lot. Mm. Um, but uh, he realizes that Putin realizes that if he does that, the the consequences for him will be catastrophic. Having said that, any kind of discussion about that, about whether you know, if for example, he really has said that to his inner circle or whatever and the West knows about it. It's not the kind of thing that you or I or anybody else is going to hear about. That's going to be very, very highly classified information. 
if it was leaked, um, he would go to jail for a very long time and it would all be denied. So, you know, it, it, it's there's limited mileage in even speculating about it. Yeah, well, let's hope that the war does come to an end very soon because as brilliant as it's been having you on and giving us a detailed account of what's going on, or what's been going on out there for the last year or so, and we've, you know, had the occasional joke and shown, shown a bit of light through the darkness of it, we can't forget the people that have lost their lives in the war and also the people that have had to flee their own country you know, we've accepted with open arms in 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 this country uh, for the refugees that have come over. But I just hope it stops yep. as as soon as possible. And uh, that's all we that's all we can do, really. Thanks, Colin. Colin, thanks for coming on again, Cheers. mate. Thank yeah. you. Till next time, I suppose. Till next time. Fuck's sake! What's he going to bring next time? <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I am a little bit shaky after some of those stories, but I'm very glad that Colin decided to come back for a second time. My first thought on Colin is I'm completely fine with double-dipping guests. It was great to have him back on. My second assessment of the details, I'm grateful because, like I mentioned, I sit in this bubble where I just worry about my family and what's going on in my little world. But it's important to get a perspective of what's actually happening in the world and to get the detail which Colin provided on what's going on out in Ukraine is is massive and I'm really grateful for him coming on and, and sharing that with us. If you enjoyed that as much as Joe and I did and you would like to support the show, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify and Patreon. For a pound a week, you can get bonus content, ad-free episodes and you'll be growing the show at the same time. You can also listen and free on Amazon Music. Yeah, and we've still got tickets available for our live tour later on in the year. So if you fancy coming, click the link in the episode description or just search the Joe Marler Show live tour. Who's on our next episode, please? Do you like fudge, Joe? Fudge? Mm. What, like the stuff you eat? Because I'm going to fudge it. We don't know at this point who is on next week, but Ryan has got irons in the fire. He's confident he can pull one out and deliver a blinder. Let's see, shall we? You're a dickhead. Why me? Because I thought you were going to offer me some fudge. (laughs) I'm fucking starving. (laughs) Let's go and get you a finger of fudge. Grow up. I'm going to go finger my fudge. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. Podcast Network.